Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a History of Europe Key Battles podcast. This is the Crimean War of 1853-1856, to part one of four. From the beginning of history until the 19th century, the reporting of military battles had always been rather patchy, and often biased in favour of the victor. Also for contemporaries involved in the fighting, news of events on the battlefield could often take a long time to reach back to the capital and the political leaders. And as for public opinion, well it had scarcely existed at all. All that changed in the 19th century with the rapid improvement of roads, the invention of railways and telegraphy, and the great expansion of printing and the press. The Crimean War of 1853-56 was the first major war on European soil which was photographed, and where independent journalists sent regular correspondents back home to the public who quickly developed an insatiable appetite for the latest news on events. The consequences were profound, as governments could no longer depend on their traditional methods of propaganda, and had to become much more responsive to the public mood, which suddenly became far more volatile. The spark for the Crimean War was a question of national pride, perhaps surprisingly in an ever more secular world, centred on religion, specifically the main door of the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. By a tradition established over the centuries, the key to the door was held by monks of the Eastern or Orthodox branch of the Christian Church. They were the guardians of the grotto in which lay the sacred manger where Christ himself was meant to have been born. This was contested with great fervour by the local monks of the Roman Catholic Church, and backed up by the ruler of France, Emperor Napoleon III, who was in turn responding to pressure from the ultra-Catholic press in his country. In November 1852, the Ottoman government, under intense diplomatic pressure 
from the French agreed to grant Catholics the right to the key. However, this decision infuriated the Tsar of Russia, Nicholas I, who in response threatened violence of his own. And on 27th of December, he ordered the mobilisation of 37,000 troops in preparation for a lightning strike on the Turkish capital, and a further 91,000 soldiers for a campaign in the Balkans and around the river Danube. Naturally, the motives for war were much deeper and wider than possession of a key to a door, no matter how holy the place it led to. The geopolitical reason for the outbreak of war between Russia on one side and Britain, France and Turkey on the other was the rapid rise of the power of Russia and the respective decline in Ottoman authority. Less than 200 years beforehand, the population of Christendom had been terrified by the threat of a Turkish invasion. Now the concern was more the imminent collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the instability to the European balance of power such a collapse could bring. A key milestone in the decline of the Ottoman Empire was the failure of the Turkish army at the Siege of Vienna, 1683, and the war which followed, in which Christians gained significant territory from the Turks, notably in Hungary. Ottoman power thereafter slowly diminished over the decades, suffering from internal problems and military backwardness. Turkey had a large army and accounted for as much as 70% of treasury expenditure, but it was technically inferior to the modern armies of Christian Europe. It lacked their centralised administration, command structures and military schools, was poorly trained and was still dependent on the recruitment of mercenaries, irregulars and tribal forces from the periphery of the empire. By the time of the Napoleonic Wars in the first years of the 19th century, the great powers of Europe were already eyeing up how they could best take advantage of the Ottoman decline or prevent their rivals from taking advantage. In a Russo-Turkish war of 1806-1812, Russia occupied Ottoman territory on the western coast of the Black Sea, Moldavia as well as much of Wallachia. In the year 1810, the Russian army advanced further south across the river Danube, capturing key fortresses along the way, and by the end of 1811, Sultan Mahmud II was urgently seeking peace. Russia, now itself threatened by Napoleon's invasion, agreed to settle, and under the terms of the Treaty of Bucharest of 1812, acquired no more territory than Bessarabia, the part of Moldavia between the rivers Dniestra and Prut. The treaty also gave the Ottomans the right to reoccupy territory in Serbia lost earlier to a national insurgents in return for concessions to the Serbs regarding self-administration. Resistance in Serbia continued, however, and was only gradually repressed. In 1813, the Turks recaptured the Serbian capital, Belgrade, but they were unable to pacify the whole of the province. Also at the Treaty of Bucharest, Moscow made gains in the Caucasus Mountains, which henceforth became a long-standing source of conflict between the two nations. In the Muslim parts of the Caucasus, Ottoman sultans lost prestige with their inability to protect their co-religionists 
from Russian encroachment. The Ottoman Sultan, Mahmud II, ascended to the Turkish throne in 1808, at the age of 20, and inherited some fundamental problems. Firstly, the Janissaries, the elite Ottoman forces, once widely feared among Ottoman enemies, were not only no longer suited to the task of defending the Ottoman frontiers, but had become dangerous when idle in the capital Istanbul. In three consecutive years, 1809 till 1811, the capital experienced disorder provoked by Janissary uprisings. And when called upon to serve in 1811, most of them deserted almost before they had left Istanbul. Secondly, the provincial rulers had become increasingly powerful and less dependable over the decades, as evidenced in the war with Russia, when some refused to cooperate. Mahmud took resolute measures to deprive the local magnates of the resources on which their power rested, and began to centralise the system of tax farming. This policy met with resistance, but did achieve some success. In 1812 and 1813, Istanbul suffered further setbacks, with the loss of control of the holy places of Mecca and Medina in Arabia, to the newly formed Emirate of Diriya, which was established by Prince Mohammed bin Saud, founder of the House of Saud, who ruled Saudi Arabia today. Another region where Ottoman power had declined was North Africa. At the time of Mahmud's accession, the local governor in Egypt was a man named Mehmet, or sometimes Mohammed Ali. Born in northern Greece to a family of Albanian origins, Mehmet Ali fought with the Ottomans against Napoleon. Following the French withdrawal, he rose to power through a series of political manoeuvres and became local governor in Cairo. He initiated a violent purge of the Mamluks, consolidating his rule and permanently ending the Mamluk hold over Egypt. And he attempted to modernise Egypt by instituting dramatic military and economic reforms. Istanbul's ties to Egypt had been weakened by the earlier French invasion and had only nominal control over the province. Mahmud entrusted Mehmet Ali with the recovery of Mecca and Medina, although with some anxiety as to whether he could be trusted not to hold them for himself. The campaign dragged on for two years, but was in the end successful. Mehmed Ali's son, Ibrahim, was appointed commander-in-chief of the forces in the Hejaz, and by 1818 had captured the Saudi capital at Al-Diriya, now a suburb of Riyadh, which was razed to the ground. The next major foreign challenge for Sultan Mahmud was a growing movement for Greek independence. Encouragement for the Greeks was first provided by the Russian Empress Catherine the Great, who dreamt of liberating the Balkan Christians and uniting them with Russia in an Orthodox Empire, with its spiritual centre in Constantinople. Under Alexander, a number of Greek-born Russians revived the hope of uniting all the Greeks through a series of uprisings against the Turks. Traditionally, the beginning of the movement is marked as the 25th of March 1821, when the Metropolitan of Patras, named Germanos, raised the cross in defiance of the Ottoman authorities in the northern Peloponnese. When the Patriarch of Constantinople 
was found unwilling or unable to quell the rebellion, he was unceremoniously hanged in Istanbul. Over the next years, a struggle ensued in the Peloponnese, which was bloody but inconclusive. In 1822, the Ottoman troops brutally crushed a Greek uprising on the island of Chios, hanging 20,000 islanders and deporting into slavery almost all the surviving population of 70,000 Greeks. Europe was outraged by the massacre, whose horrors were depicted by the French painter Eugène Delacroix in his great masterpiece, The Massacre of Chios. As news of Turkish atrocities spread, Tsar Alexander I of Russia felt increasingly obliged to intervene on the side of his fellow Orthodox worshippers. He believed that actions of the Ottomans were excessively brutal and felt a duty to protect the Greeks' religious rights. However, he decided against unilateral action out of commitment to the Concert of Europe, by which the great powers of Europe had agreed to resolve major crises through international negotiation. At an international congress, the Tsar called for the creation of a large autonomous Greek state under Russian protection, much like Moldavia and Wallachia. However, the British feared that this would be a means for Russia to advance its own interests and to intervene in Ottoman affairs on the pretext of protecting its co-religionists. Austria was equally wary that a successful Greek revolt would set off uprisings in parts of Central Europe under its control, and so Alexander backed off from supporting the Greeks while continuing to urge for collective assistance. However, two events in 1825 changed minds. Firstly, the Sultan called in Mehmet Ali to put down the Greek revolt, which his Egyptian army carried out with new atrocities. And secondly, Alexander died and was succeeded by his son, Nicholas I. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
29, when he came to the throne, Nicholas was tall and imposing, with a large balding head, large sideburns and an officer's moustache. He had an obsessive interest in military affairs and enjoyed attending military parades and training. More than Alexander, Nicholas placed a defensive orthodoxy at the centre of his foreign policy, alongside a determination to stamp down on liberalism or any kind of social unrest. In Britain, considerable public sympathy developed for the Greek cause, thanks in part to Lord Byron and other British men who travelled to Greece to join resistance against the Turks. Byron died in 1824 at the age of 36 from a fever contracted after helping the Greeks at the siege of Missolonghi, when an Ottoman attempt at capture of the port was repelled. In 1827, Britain, Russia and France agreed the Treaty of London, which demanded the Ottoman government granted the Greeks autonomy and dispatched naval squadrons to the eastern Mediterranean to enforce their policy. The three Allied navies hastened to Navarino off the coast of the Peloponnese. Their respective admirals had strict orders not to go directly into battle, but rather to encourage the Turkish and Egyptian warships to return home peaceably. However, negotiations became tense and it became impossible to tell whether any action on the other side was merely provocative or actually aggressive. A naval battle ensued, the last major one in history to be fought entirely with sailing ships, and the result was complete victory for the Allies, achieved through superior firepower and gunnery. Of the 89 Turkish and Egyptian ships, only 29 survived. An estimated 6,000 of the Sultan's men were estimated killed, and another 4,000 wounded. Despite such a heavy defeat, the Sultan still had available a total of some 40,000 troops in central and southern Greece, entrenched in powerful fortresses. So the final liberation of Greece was still far off, unless the Ottomans could be induced to accept the Treaty of London. The next year, 1828, the Russians launched simultaneous attacks into the Danubian principalities and the Caucasus. By July 1829, the Russian army reached the city of Edina, only 200 kilometres from Istanbul, while their eastern forces had taken northeastern Anatolia as far as the towns of Erzurum and Trabzon, seizing many other fortresses along the way. The Ottomans sued for peace, which was concluded with the Treaty of Adrianople, as one of the terms of the peace, the Ottomans acquiesced in the establishment of an independent Greek state comprising the Peloponnese and part of mainland Greece together with a number of islands. Also under the Treaty of Adrianople, Russia won the right to trade within the borders of the Ottoman Empire and its occupation of part of Georgia and Armenia was recognised. Moscow acquired a small piece of territory on the northern shore of the Danube Delta, while Moldavia and Wallachia became her protectorates. Although still formerly part of the Ottoman Empire, only remnants of her suzerainty remained. The annual tribute and the Sultan's right to confirm the election of the princes. For the British this development was a concern, as they saw Russia increasingly as a significant potential threat to her interests in the East. The economic terms of the treaty proved a strong stimulus to agriculture 
and trade in the Danubian principalities, modern-day Romania, because they relieved their obligations to provision Istanbul and opened them to international markets, especially up the River Danube to Central Europe. Tsar Nicholas appointed an energetic officer and an administrator, Pavel Kiselev, who from 1829 to 1834 reformed the principalities on relatively liberal principles. This encouraged the growth of a new middle class, including merchants and artisans, who became a dynamic force behind the development of cities. They were inspired to bring the provinces out of their backwardness and bring them into closer connection with Western Europe. The Russians tried to win the sympathy of the local peasantry through economic concessions. They brought churches under their influence and they improved the infrastructure of the region, in part to help with possible future operations against Turkey. Among the Turks there was widespread anger about the humiliating conditions of the treaty and popular revolts swept through Anatolia in 1829 and 1830. But Sultan Mahmud survived and pursued reform with renewed urgency. He issued an edict for the formation of a new corps, initially numbering in excess of 7,500 men. The intention was to reform the Janissary corps from within by means of restructuring, and providing them with other military skills they sorely needed if they were to stand any chance of standing up to the might of Russia. The Janissaries, however, were not persuaded by the reforms. Once the champions of the Ottoman state and a key part of its success, they were no longer the fighting force they once were, and had become a dangerously subversive element, who frequently revolted against any hint of loss of their privileged position in society. Barely two weeks after the Sultan announced his reforms, a small band of Janissaries began to roam the streets of Istanbul, firing guns, starting fires, and overturned their cauldrons in a traditional gesture of defiance. They then advanced to the Sultan's palace, thus repeating an all-too-familiar pattern. But this time, the Sultan was prepared for them. His troops and artillery were ready for action. As the mob pressed through the narrow streets towards the palace, guns opened fire from its walls, cutting swathes through their columns as they fell helpless against the relentless barrage. The Janissaries hastily retreated to the Hippodrome and retired within the walls of the barracks. Mahmud ruthlessly took advantage of the situation and ordered heavy artillery to fire on the barracks, setting them ablaze. Soon they lay in ruins, with 4,000 of the mutineers perished. On the same day, the Sultan proclaimed that the Janissaries' unit was formally abolished and their standards were destroyed. In their place was announced the formation of a new Turkish army. The removal of the Janissaries was a vital step in the Sultan's recovery of authority and is referred to in history as the auspicious incident. The Sultan's ambitions, however, were not limited to the military. It was evident to Mahmud that wider reform would be required to sustain the empire and protection from neighbouring powers. His aim, therefore, was nothing less than a transformation of society, or as Mahmud called it in an edict, the Tanzimat, or auspicious reordering. Purposefully taking ideas from Western Europe, he established a military college modelled on the lines of Napoleon's military academy of Saint-Cyr. He slashed the power of the clergy, 
depriving them of their secular responsibilities, and he centralised his civil service. He introduced modern principles of education, founded a postal service and the first Turkish language newspaper in Istanbul, and introduced new laws on public health. And he also established a new school of medicine to train doctors and later surgeons for the new army. As time went by, the school extended its range to cover a wider field of scientific, cultural and intellectual studies and took the unprecedented step of adopting the French language for general use in teaching. Mahmoud also abolished the visual signs of the old ways, doing away with the traditional long robes and turbans, and making mandatory the fez, the frock coat, European-style trousers and black leather boots. He introduced contemporary Italian music to court, inviting the composer Giuseppe Donizetti, brother of the better-known Gaetano, with the task of training the military band. The Sultan also continued the very un-Islamic practice of having his portrait painted and presenting copies to statesmen and foreign dignitaries. He went further and in addition ordered his portrait to be hung on view in public places such as barracks and government offices, just as other European monarchs of the time did. To learn further from the West, he took the bold step of sending small groups of students to Paris, who on their return were to play a significant role in the modern evolution of their country. My name is Carl Rylett, and you've been listening to a History of Europe Kibatos podcast. You can contact me directly at carl, that's C-A-R-L, at historyeurope.net, or on the Facebook page for the podcast. If you'd like to support the show, then you can do so at patreon.com stroke history europe. Or if you like the History of Europe key battles, then why not give it a great review on iTunes or wherever you get the podcast from. Today's music was Frederick Chopin's Mazurka in C-sharp minor and his Etude number no. 3 in E major and also a work by the Russian composer Mikhail Grinka, the Trio Pathétique. I hope you can join me next week for the second part of the Crimean War. Until then, all the best and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.